So we all know that I love a good haunted pub, and it is spooky season. It is. Yes. <laughs> so when Laura's mom suggested that we cover Ireland, I knew that there had to be some haunted pubs. Of course. <laughs> and so with that, I'm going to tell you the history of a pub in Ireland that has some ghostly residents. It is called John Cavanaugh, and it's nicknamed the Gravedigger's Pub, and it's located in Dublin, Ireland. Okay, well, if it's nicknamed Gravedigger's, like... <laughs> And you'll find out why. Okay. So, John Cavanaugh, or Cavanaugh's Pub, uh, originated in 1833 and was named after its earliest owner, John Cavanaugh. <laughs> Pretty predictable. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually still owned by the Kavanaugh family to this day. Like, it's passed down through the generations. The bar was a gift from John's hotelier father-in-law after he married the father-in-law's daughter, Susan O'Neill. Uh, and it served local working class, or it served the local working class community for almost 200 years. With some of its most frequent patrons being gravediggers. Makes sense. Yep, this is likely because it's built into the wall of Glasnevin Cemetery. The pub is? Yep. Well then, that would make sense. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's built into the wall of the cemetery? Yes. So it's an above ground cemetery? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So the cemetery actually opened a year before the pub itself, so 1832. Uh, and a note on the cemetery, because it's actually historic in its own right, it was the first of its kind and was open to Irish citizens of all faiths after there had been a public outcry over discrimination against Catholics in Ireland. So they let anyone get buried there. Well, that's, I mean, we should all be able to live forever where we want. Exactly. Um, so a promotional pamphlet for the bar wrote of its clientele. Uh, this isn't a wealthy Victorian bar of stained glass and gilt mirrors. <laughs> this, was, this was and is a working man's bar of straight talking and creamy pints. A generational mix of customers from all walks of life trading tales. Sounds nice, you know? Yeah, sounds chill. Yeah, you just want, sometimes you just want to hang out in a... A chill Sometimes pub. you just want a beer. With some grave diggers. Yeah. <laughs> <And> ghosts. <laughs> so besides grave diggers and local workers, the pub was also, of course, very popular with mourners who had just buried or were about to bury their loved ones. Well, that's kind of sad. Yes. <laughs> uh, interestingly, because so many of the mourners at the cemetery would show up to funerals drunk or miss them altogether because they were so drunk. Uh, the city cemetery committee enacted a bylaw to restrict burials to the mornings before noon. It was later changed to before 3 p.m. Because I guess they figured people were less likely to be hammered at that time or they would wait until after the funeral to get hammered. That is crazy. <laughs> that they like, had to make a bylaw because so many people were drunk. So many people were showing up drunk that like now you can only bury your loved ones in the morning. Yeah. I don't know what that says about the people of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, unfortunately, the bylaw did hurt the business. Um, and later, the nearby eastern gate to the cemetery was closed, which caused another blow to their revenue because people weren't, like, exiting or entering literally right next to the pub. Um, so in order to attract more people, John decided to spice things up with adding games. He also included a shooting range in the back of the bar. And this definitely helped to, to drum up some business. I'm really trying to picture how this bar is built into the side of this. Like, in my head, it's like I think, a walk-up counter. No, <laughs> I think, like, basically, like, the back wall of the bar is, like, the wall of the cemetery, right? So it was, like, built backing out. up to the yeah. cemetery yeah oh because in my head i'm picturing like like a dugout <laughs> on the side of the cemetery and i'm like how is there a shooting range 
<laughs> this is counter service. So Although, how is... Oh, I guess there was just a shooting range inside the bar. Because if it was out... I don't know. If it was out back... In the cemetery? It would be in the cemetery. <laughs> I don't know. But apparently there was a shooting range. <laughs> I don't know that there still is. So that we might never know. That doesn't seem safe. No. <laughs> um... Family members later would do other things to kind of spruce up the bar and attract people. So in the 1920s, a grocery was added. Uh, in the 1980s, a lounge was added and a food menu was added in the early 2000s. Now, besides the obvious factor of a lot of grave diggers being at the bar, um, a reason that it got its nickname is because of the unique ways that they allegedly ordered their beers. So rumor has it that pints used to be passed through a hole in the cemetery wall uh, and the grave diggers would basically order their beers by knocking against the wall with the shovels that they just used to dig up the graves. So they'd like use their shovels, like hit the wall of the cemetery and like someone would pass a beer through a hole in the wall to them. Wild. <laughs> Fun times. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to be a grave digger, but I don't know. I feel like drinking on the job feels weird too. Why? Nice. They have <laughs> been done like digging their grave before they got their beer, but. Or during, I don't know. They might have been like, you know what, let's take a little break and have some beers. I guess. Um, some people dispute that this happened. It is just a rumor. Um, so a historian named Syrian Wallace says that not only would this be a breach of alcohol licensing laws, um, but that it was unlikely and unnecessary as the wall and the gate the wall and the gate and pub door are only about 10 paces apart. So like it would have been easy to just go into the bar and order a beer. But it's like so much more boring. Yeah, I mean, I like the story behind it. <laughs> like, and who cares about alcohol licensing laws? <laughs> who cares about the Don't law? Don't be boring, Syrian. <laughs> um, so an another man named... That is how you say this name, right? Syrian? Maybe. All right, that's what we're going with. So another man also named Syrian, uh, Syrian Kavanaugh, AKA the bar's head chief and descendant of I John Kavanaugh. Kieran. Kieran. You're probably right. Apologies, Kieran Kavanaugh. That sounds more Irish. Yeah, and Kieran Wallace. I apologize for mispronouncing your name. Uh, so Kieran Kavanaugh, who's the bar's head chef and obviously a descendant of the original owner, um, says of that story of the, the beer passing, it's one of those things we really can't confirm or deny. No one is alive to deny it, but I heard people put their hands through the walls to get their pints. None of my relations ever told me this, but I've heard it talked about. And you know what? He's right. There is no one living right now from 1833 that can deny that that happened, <laughs> which means that in my heart, it did happen. Okay. <laughs> he did confirm though, that they would often like knock on the walls with their shovels, like according to his family. Um, he said that they would knock with their shovel or their boots and he said, hopefully not a skull. Oh my goodness. <laughs> hopefully Too not. Too dark, Karen. Too dark. <laughs> um, Anyway, the bar, of course, can still be visited today uh, and even has the same original bar counter that was put in in 1833. Uh, it has been moved back a few feet to mark to make room for like patrons to drink uh, as the bar became more popular. It was originally one room, but as I noted in the 80s, a family mem member named Eugene Cavanaugh uh, built a lounge area, which was about triple the size of the original bar, uh, and that was to help drum up business during an econom economic downturn. His son, Kieran, uh, who I obviously just mentioned, decided that serving food would also help. In the 2000s, he came back from culinary studies in Italy, uh, and he decided to start making some traditional dishes such as koodle and Irish spring rolls. 
uh, and talking about the atmosphere of the bar, Atlas Obscura wrote, signs of age appear in the low ceilings and wood floor, damaged by well over a century's worth of spilled Guinness and spat tobacco. Which sounds yummy. Yeah. <laughs> I, but there's something about walking into an Irish pub that's been open for decades, and it is just... Almost 200 years, this one. I Yeah, but, like, it just... It just feels right. Yeah, and it's, like, mm-hmm. kind of dark. Like they said, the low ceilings. Like, it just... Yeah. yeah, like, if you walk into an Irish pub and you're like, wow, this is very clean... That's not the pub you want to be in. Turn around. <laughs> Hightail it out of there. Find a dark, kind of dirty old pub. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Atlas Obscura actually also wrote that there is still a sectioned off area of the bar where back in the day, women once drank separately from men. And we know. Snugs. Yep. It was a snug. It was a snug. <laughs> if you have no idea what we're talking about, we did a whole episode. Vanessa told us about snugs. Yes. In season three. Yeah. So go back. I actually think that's one of my favorite episodes from season three because I think that was the same episode I told the Lysol story. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a good episode. It's a great episode if you haven't listened to it. <laughs> um, of course, anyone can drink in the snug today. It's not exclusive women only. I I know. I kind of wish it was. Imagine if it was like exclusive now, but like it was cool to be exclusive. Yeah, like men and women could drink in the whole bar, but only women in that one area. Yeah, (laughs) I'd be into it. Um, okay. So in order to keep the historic feel of the place, no phone calls can be made from the bar, and no music can be played. Which, if you're a Gilmore Girls fan, reminds me very much of Luke Steiner. Wait, no music in an Irish pub? Yep. No music, no phone calls. Oh, that's almost a red flag. <laughs> that's part of the charm of an Irish pub. Nope. nope. I get the no phone calls, actually. I kind of dig that rule. Yeah. But no music. Yeah, no. The bar actually doesn't have a phone, like itself. There's no phone in the bar. There's no TV. There's no Wi-Fi. And there's no sound system. Okay. <laughs> um, and this rule of no music applies to literally everyone. So in 1984, the lead singer of Irish folk band, the Dublini- Dubliners, mm-hmm. Luke Kelly, died and was buried at Glasnevin, which meant that the pub received some pretty famous guests, including you two. Me? I was there, <laughs> including you two, <laughs> the chieftains, and the rest of the Dubliners, of course. Uh, and in order to honor their friend as musicians, they, of course, decided to play music. Uh, so Kieran remembers this from when he was 14, and he said, quote, They started to clear their throats and began playing music. My dad, Eugene Cavanaugh, went out there and told everyone that they couldn't have any music or singing. We don't allow it, he said. It would have been the best session ever, and especially in the pub that didn't have any music, it would have gone down in legend. But that was the rule. It's a place to just drink. It's always been about the drinking. Wow, that's wild. Right? Can you imagine, like, telling Bono, like, sorry, bro, you can't play music in my bar. No music in my bar. Wild. That is wild. Yep. But these rules don't really make the pub any less loved by the community. In fact, the Gravedigger's Pub has won the award for the best community pub in Ireland by Irish Hospitality Global. And in 2013, Lonely Planet put the bar at number 47 out of its 50 hidden treasures of Europe, which of course caused the business to boom. I would imagine. Yeah. So, no music doesn't seem to hurt it. That's wild to me. Because, like, that is a big part of, like, the, the, the Irish pub experience. Yeah. Well, maybe because it's so popular, some people just like to seek out some quiet. Have a nice conversation over some beers. Yeah, because it is hard to chat when everyone's, you know, yeah. singing. Yeah. Also, I guess it kind of makes sense if it's, like, literally 
basically on the cemetery property like you don't want to like be blasting music while people are like visiting their dead relatives yeah you know so i can i can see it but anyway let's uh let's talk about our ghost friends i was gonna say are we getting to haunted <laughs> so the bar reports of course normal ghostly occurrences such as strange noises like keys jangling and objects falling with no explanation. Some regulars claim to have seen the spirits of the loved ones who are buried in the cemetery, but to me that seems more like wishful thinking. Like, oh, I saw the ghost of my grandma. Like, yeah. You know, you're just like kind of hoping you did. Yeah. Um, however, many patrons have claimed to spot one spirit in particular, which has been lovingly nicknamed the man in tweed. Hi. Atlas Obscura describes this ghostly gentleman as a dapper fellow with a preference for Guinness. Sounds as one uh, Sounds as one like has. an Irishman. Yes. Uh, so, Kieran Wallace, who I quoted earlier that was denying Gravedigger rumors, actually does believe in a lot of the ghost stories. He himself worked at the pub in the 1970s as a teenager uh, and heard many stories from his time there. So one of his favorite stories is about Uncle Jack Cavanaugh and his bad-tempered dog. The dog was apparently super grumpy and grouchy and was not allowed in the bar when customers were around because he was such a nasty dog, <laughs> which I love. But he tells the story by, saying, story by saying that Jack had to go upstairs for a moment, but on returning to the door to the bar, he met the dog, hackles raised, growling and barking out of the bar. Jack presumed that there were robbers inside, but he saw nobody. He tried to get the dog to attack, but the dog was too scared and would not go inside the bar area. Some unseen thing had terrified a very aggressive dog. Jack locked the internal do door, left the money on the counter, and put the dog outside. He went up to bed for an uncomfortable night's sleep. In the morning, the cash was all there, and the dog was happy to be let back out. So, like, the dog was just really fucking freaked out by something that no one else could see. So there's just ghosts chilling in the bar. Yep. Uh, Anne Cavanaugh, the sister of Kieran, uh, and also the manager of day-to-day -day operations at the pub, also has a story. She said that back when the family lived in a small second-floor flat above the original bar, while she was falling asleep one night, she saw a young girl with brown curly hair perched at the foot of her bed. I kept blinking and blinking and realized quickly that I was still awake. There she was in a white nightdress with a frilly collar, puffed up shoulders and long sleeves. She just smiled at me. Then she was gone. And she clarified that she didn't drink until her 30s, so she was not like drunk and seeing things. She was completely sober. Right. And just saw this little girl sitting on her bed. And like... Do they think these are ghosts from the cemetery? Because, like, the bar has been opened. Mm -hmm. Like, they know the whole history of the bar, so they would know if, like, tragedy yeah. happened. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. They believe that people from the cemetery are haunting the bar. They're just like, oh, it's this place. Let me go haunt it. <laughs> but is that how ghosts work? I don't know. Like, I feel like most ghost stories are, like, they haunt where they died. or Yeah. They... Right. It's not like ghosts just get up in the middle of the night and are like, let's go, you know, <laughs> let's torment go these bar. people. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no, like, stories of a person being murdered that they know of in the bar. Besides, like, I'm sure because a lot of the family has lived in the bar, maybe, like, relatives may have died in the bar. Right. Not murdered, but just, like, died. I don't know. I don't know how much I believe the ghost story, because, like, it, that's not how ghost stories typically happen. Yeah. Also, like, if she was trying to fall asleep, she, you know how sometimes, like, you don't realize you drifted off for a little bit? Like. Yeah. I don't know. Been, she could have been dreaming. I mean, I like the combo of it being gravediggers and it being haunted, but. I don't know. Sometimes people might just play into those. Yeah. All right, well, let's see what you think about the man in Tweed. Okay. I'm going to tell his story now. 
So the story goes that one night when Eugene was shuffling out stragglers from the bar uh, and telling them to go home, that the young men were annoyed and said that it was unfair that the old guy at the other end of the bar got to stay nursing his Guinness. Kieran recounted his father telling his father's telling of the story by saying that his father replied, I'd have served him that pint and I haven't served anyone a Guinness. Look, my dad would continue, there's nobody there. And sure enough, no one was. But an empty glass of Guinness sat on the bar. The boys would have described what he looked like, uh, a little pointy beard, a little pointy beard and a wristwatch with a chain that led to his waistcoat, a real Victorian look. Um, and after a few of these ghostly encounters, Eugene did bring in mediums, ghost hunters, and haunted, haunt, hosted seances, uh, capitalizing on the bar's spooky resident. Kieran said, my dad was really into supernatural things. He would have talked to a lot of people like mediums and ghost hunters. They had a few readings. One of the mediums did a seance where she drew a picture of a man who looked like my granddad standing beside my dad at the time. She also saw the ghost of a dog outside. I don't know. Maybe maybe the man that those guys saw drinking Guinness was his granddad. Yeah. I mean, like, that would make sense if it's, like, right. a descendant coming back to the bar. Yeah. I would believe if the man in Tweed is, you know, Grandpa Kavanaugh. <laughs> Just drinking his Guinness. Just drinking his Guinness. <laughs> um, so, Kieran hasn't seen any of the ghosts himself. Uh, he told Atlas Obscura, I drink a whiskey and sometimes tequila, but those are the only spirits I've seen. <laughs> what a bum. <laughs> um, he said, you can definitely feel the generations of my family are here, but to see them, you would have to be there at the right time. I've been standing in the pub and thought, God, my father all the way to my great grandfather was standing in this very spot doing exactly the same thing I'm doing now. And that's pretty cool and spooky, if you ask me. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and one last ghost that might be haunting the bar might be his father, Eugene. Apparently, the pub used to not take credit cards. Again, keeping with that authentic, authentic and old-fashioned vibe of not having, like, Wi-Fi or TV or anything. Um, and Eugene was very firmly against credit cards. Uh, there was even a poster hanging in the bar that said, caution all persons using bad language, asking for credit. The nearest hospital is the matter. So, like, they'd be sent to the hospital. Yeah. Um, but to keep up with the times, the Kavanaugh's decided to give in, and they did get a credit card machine after Eugene's death. However, they haven't had much luck with it. He said, we actually take credit cards now. Since that's happened, it, being the credit card machine, keeps breaking. We think it's dad just breaking it, says Kieran. I mean, Kieran. He's just hanging out, trying to keep his family in check. That's breaking his credit card machine. That's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, like, if that were true, that would be those, yeah. like, almost cute ghost cute stories. Ghost story. <laughs> He's like, fuck no, you will not bring this into my bar. Because, <laughs> like, in order to have a credit card machine, you have to have internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so he, they must have gotten Wi-Fi, too. Yeah. But, like, could you imagine being that not tech savvy in, like, 2022? Like, a bar. I know. No internet, no Wi-Fi, no phones. No, like. Yeah. I mean, it does sound nice. It's like nice stepping back in time, almost. For, for like, a, a night. Yeah. So, the bar did shut down during um, COVID and lockdown for about 18 months. But it has since reopened to the joy of many of the local residents who frequent the pub. So next time you're in London, you should check out the Gravedigger's Pub, grab a pint, and maybe hang out with the man in Tweed. I think I will. <laughs> um, so my sources for the story were two articles from Atlas Obscura. One was just called John Cavanaugh, the Gravedigger's. Uh, the other one was called How a Dublin Pub Became a Haunt for Gravediggers Grave and Ghost Alike by Valentina Valentini. That's a name. She also wrote a different article about the pub for BBC.com called Where Grave Diver Where Grave Diver <laughs> Where Grave Diggers Drank Their Pints. 
And then lastly, an article from Dublin Live called Irish Pubs, a spine-tingling history of the Gravediggers, one of the most haunted bars in Dublin. And yeah. And I also read a fact, but I couldn't verify it anywhere. Or not a fact, just like a note in like Ghost City, I think it was ghostcitytours.com that people like will throw dirt from the graveyard against the side of the pub to honor the gravediggers, but I didn't see that anywhere else, but maybe. Could happen. (laughs) So this week's story was more difficult to write than anticipated. Hmm. Because there were honestly so many choices. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ireland is like one of the first places I think of. Right. It was like decision fatigue. Yeah. Like, do I go historical? Do I go with a biography story? Like, an origin story? Haunted bar I almost went with. It's like this, like, OG drinking country of stories. Right. So it was hard to, like, narrow down what I was going to do. Um, and so in the end, I decided to take some inspiration from something near and dear to my heart. And of course, she's not fucking out here right now. (laughs) (laughs) She's been bothering us all afternoon, but my cat. Yes. Guinness. Yes. And so if you've been listening to the podcast long enough, she makes her appearance every once in a while. But um, my family has a tradition of naming all of our pets after Irish items. And my cat's name is Guinness. So this week I'm bringing you a combined historical biographical origin story (laughs) about the Guinness Brewery. Woo! Um, But we're going to start with the man who started it all. Uh Uh, The one and only Arthur Guinness. Uh, Arthur was born in 1725 in Selbridge, Ireland, and he grew up with a family that was not well off, but did well for themselves. They served as the groundskeepers on land held by a very high-ranking official of the Protestant Church. Um, He was the Archbishop of Cashel, Arthur Price. And so his family was... You know, they had, like, a decent home on the land, and his father, like, kept the grounds lovely, and they were just very well taken care of by this archbishop. And they also, in addition to being groundskeepers, owned a successful flour mill. Um, Like, kind of his extended family were known for this flour mill. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has uncles and aunts who are politicians, not aunts, uncles, who were politicians and served in <laughs> Parliament. I was about to be like, damn. Yeah. Uh, so, like, the Guinness family had a small name for themselves and were doing well, but nowhere near the fame that they have today. Right. Um, and what happened is when the Archbishop passed away as, like, a thank you for faithfully serving him for most of their lives... He actually left Arthur's family um, a significant amount of money mm-hmm. in his will. And can you guess what our young Arthur Guinness did with his share of his money? He started to brew beer. He did. <laughs> uh, so in 1759, in 1759, Arthur was 34 years old. And he walks into like the outskirts of Dublin and he finds an old rundown brewery and he decides to purchase it um, on a lease. You now, know what? I love when a story starts with someone doing something in their mid-30s. Yeah. <laughs> it gives me hope. <laughs> and so uh, the brewery is called St. James Gate Brewery. At the time, it's four acres in size. It's not really being used. It has very small, in good shape brewing equipment. But he buys it anyways because he gets an awesome deal. Are you ready to hear the lease he signed? Oh, I'm ready. Are you? Am I? (laughs) He leased the brewery 
for 45 pounds a year for 9,000 years. Holy shit! <laughs> so is that what they still pay? It, it, it is where Guinness is still located today. Holy shit! Yeah. How do I find a deal like that? I don't know. And just imagine, like... 9,000 years. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> um, and so this began his brewery journey. And, you know, we all know Guinness for that rich, creamy, black, stout beer with the white head. Mm -hmm. That's actually not what he began his journey brewing. Okay. Um, he started by brewing a pretty basic English ale mm -hmm. um, at St. James Gate, which is what the brewery is actually called today. It is not called... Guinness Brew House. It's called St. James Gate Brewery. Okay. Keeping um, the tradition. I like it. Yeah. And it was a pretty good ale. People all around Dublin liked it. He built up a name for himself. And by 1769, he had even begun to export his ale to England from Ireland. So in like 10 short years, he had, you know, done pretty well for himself. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have a lot to pay in rent, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can invest a lot into that brewing <laughs> process. And it's after the success of exporting to England, he starts to be a little bit more adventurous. So Arthur began brewing different types of porter beers, which are slightly darker than ales because they use like a roasted um barley uh we'll get to that in a second but um he starts to like play around with the the ale that he was brewing brewing porters and one beer that he develops is called the west india porter and it was super popular with like certain cultural like tourists in dublin and mm -hmm. they would go home and rave about it and want to bring it home um, and so this West India Porter is actually still brewed today and it's now known as the Guinness Foreign Extra Stout, hmm. but it makes up for 45% of all Guinness sales globally. And it's super popular in many African countries and in the Caribbean islands and in Asia more so than the traditional Guinness stout that we think of when we hear Guinness. Yeah, I actually was about to say, I didn't even know there was another Guinness option. Like, I only think of the one right. stout. Yeah. But um, Guinness is actually one of the most popular beers consumed on the African continent. Oh, interesting. And it's not the Guinness stout that we think of. It's this, this porter stout. Interesting. Um, so, but... We still aren't at the part where he brews his famous Guinness Stout. Okay. Um, in fact, Arthur isn't responsible for that brew at all. All right. Uh, Arthur dies in 1803, having a very successful brewery business and a very promising export trade. And Arthur had gone on to marry. He had many sons um, and daughters and... It starts a tradition of the chairperson of Guinness Brewery being one of the sons of okay. who's in charge. Like Kavanaugh's, it just passed. Yes. Yeah. So next up after Arthur Guinness dies is Arthur Guinness the second. Okay. He continues his father's legacy and in the eighteen thirties, um, St. James Gate Brewery is the largest brewery in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, it is very well known. It is a very big export trade. Um, it's shipping to Portugal, the United States, you know, the Caribbean, Africa, all across Europe. Um, and it's under Arthur Guinness II where the recipe for this new type of porter was written down and brewed. And he titles it the Extra Superior Porter. Now, this extra superior porter is slightly stronger than the original porter. Mm -hmm. um, and it was specifically made 
to target a newly emerging, like, dark, rich beer market in Great Britain. Uh, but this is the beer that we all know and love as Guinness Extra Stout or Guinness Original. Mm -hmm. Even though it is not the original Guinness. Yeah. Uh, that is the title of it today. It's the one we all know and expect if we order a Guinness at any American bar. Um, but at the time, it was called the Extra Superior Porter. Mm -hmm. It is interesting because even though I'm not a huge beer drinker, I do feel like brands of beer are often very like local, like a lot of American beers you're not going to get outside of America, but I feel like Guinness is the type of beer you could order literally anywhere. Anywhere in the world. Yeah. Like, you order a Guinness and you're going to get one. And you almost know what it looks like yeah. every time. Like, it's the same. It's yeah. It's amazing what yeah. this, yeah. So, as I mentioned, it starts, Arthur Guinness II started the tradition of passing on, you know, his he took over as chairperson from his father. This continues for five successive generations mm -hmm. and they create a brewing dynasty as we just talked about. So I'm not going to hit you with the like year by year takedown. We're okay. going to, we're going to go over some major highlights for Guinness brewery. Um, just because they have done so much mm -hmm. in their over 200 years but uh, I do want to just mention some of the, like, first that they're responsible for and some of their, like, biggest, you know, exciting things that they've done. So, in 1862, Arthur Guinness II's son, whose name is Benjamin Lee Guinness, takes over as chairperson. And he is the first person to trademark hmm. the word Guinness. And to trademark Important. the label of their their bottles and cans. Um, and at this point, they create a label which many of the features are still used today. Things like the Arthur Guinness signature, which can be found on every bottle or can of Guinness. The harp instrument, right. which can be found on every label. And the word Guinness itself. Okay. Um, as like not their last name but as in i want to order a guinness mm -hmm. um all of that doesn't get trademarked until the 1860s under like the third chairperson yeah which Smart is move wild. By yeah and the name right now is so well known across the dublin area and across you know ireland in general that the Guinness family is almost considered royalty. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Benjamin actually serves as the Lord Mayor of Dublin for a period of time oh. while running St. James Brewery. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't live very long and he dies in 1868, uh, leaving the business to his son, Edward Cecil Guinness. And... It's under Edward's leadership that St. James Gate Brewery becomes the largest brewery in the world. Um, and it is the first time under his, I want to say tutelage, but it's like under his leadership. Yeah. They like really expand. They're found on the London Stock Exchange for the first time. Um, and they're really expanding more and more worldwide and continue to build up St. James Gate Brewery. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, like a lot of people knew the Guinness family. They like revered the name of the Guinness family. And it's not just because of the beer. The Guinness family were great people to their community. They were consistently giving back to the Dublin community and to the people that worked for St. James Gate Brewery. So when St. Patrick's Cathedral caught on fire in Dublin and had to be completely restored, Guinness paid for it. The Guinness family paid yeah. for it. Um, and then they went on to establish a trust for um, clean, affordable housing for all working classes in Dublin. Like if you couldn't afford housing, you could apply to this trust and the Guinness family paid for people to 
have good homes if they were like attempting to work and things. Right. Um, and St. James Gate Brewery employees were among the highest paid workers in all of Dublin, receiving employment benefits such as pensions and medical health care, which were benefits not even offered by like the government to oh, their damn. state employees at the time. So this would be in like the late 1800s. Uh-huh. They were just well ahead of their time. They knew that if they had happy employees and a happy community, everyone was going to continue to support them and buy their their goods. So it was the place to work. It was the place to work. It was the beer to drink. The beer to drink. I mean, everyone just was about Guinness. Now, all of this to say, everything coming out of St. James Brewery up until this time were cans and bottles. Mm-hmm. Um draft beer wasn't a thing yet hmm i know so i almost would think draft beer was first no because the technology of getting it to come up out of the kegs did not exist so it's under uh our next chairperson which is rupert guinness um he takes over in 1927 and we see a giant shift in the Guinness um, brand. So in 1929, he launches the first official advertising campaign for Guinness. Almost 200 years after Guinness was created. Damn. The first advertising campaign. They did all this without any advertising? Correct. Like it was all word of mouth? It was all the good name of the product. Wow. Yes. There were no... That's crazy. There was no international advertising. There was no advertising in Ireland. It was all on the taste of the beer and what they gave to the community and their name. That's wild. Until 1929. Um, And, you know, again, going back into that idea of the Guinness family being so good, they hired a very local Irish advertising firm to do their advertising and even when it was super successful and their brand was so international they stayed with that same advertising firm for like 50 years um and they created some of the most iconic guinness ads Mm -hmm. that like we see replicated in like you know what i mean like you see them in vintage stores all the time yeah and you know the metal signs that are guinness ads like, those are all from a very local, like, Dublin advertising agency. And they oh. never, like, sold out and went with, like, a bigger firm. Right. Like it, That's great. It, yeah. It's it's lovely. They seem like cool people. I know. It's a great family. Yeah. Um, and then in 1936, we have another big first for the Guinness family. Uh, they decided to create a brewery outside of Dublin for the very first time. They built a brewery in Park Royal in London and is the first time that Guinness is brewed not on Irish soil. Um, And that doesn't happen until 1936. Mm -hmm. There's a couple more first under Rupert Guinness, including the launch of draft beer in 1959. Oh, wow. Yes. So we picture, and I, I'm sure it's the same picture for you, a Guinness in that pint glass with the white creamy foam yeah. that did not exist until 1959. That's wild. Cause like, like my mom was born in 1959. Yeah. So like, I, that's so recent. Right. Like there was not draft beer like that. That's when the launch of Draft Guinness happened. And so it's dispensed using pressure and mixed gas in bars. And that's what produces that distinct creamy head on the top of all of the glasses. Um, And so all this, again, is under Rupert Guinness. And Mm -hmm. he also at this time decides it's time to upgrade St. James Gate Brewery. So they switch out all of the original wooden and iron vessels and they upgrade to aluminum and stainless steel vessels. 
uh, turning St. James Gate into what is called a sterile plant, which just ensures better quality control and just a more consistent product. Right. Um, and, you know, if you go today to St. James Gate, it is much larger than the original four acres. I'm going to... Oh, sure. Yeah. But it is... It is a... a it's like unbelievable how large it is and how industrial the complex is mm -hmm. um it's pretty fascinating to see uh what and how they operate in the 2000s um it's just it's like its own city almost but in 1962 rupert passes on leadership to his grandson, Benjamin Guinness, so another Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Benjamin follows the success of the brewery in London. They go on to build further breweries in some of these countries around the world where Guinness is doing very well. So there's a brewery in Nigeria that opens in 1962, one in Malaysia in 1965, one in Cameroon, 1970, and one in Ghana in 1971. Just to show you how popular the beer is yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, Benjamin Guinness would be the last member of the Guinness family to hold the position of chairman. Oh, bummer. And he holds it from 1962 to 1986. Right before we were born. Yes. But following six generations of the Guinness family, a new chairperson takes over the legacy, but it does not ever change the history that Arthur created. Um, technology over the last three decades has exploded around the world, and St. James Brewery is keeping up at every, at every pace. Mm -hmm. uh, it is one of the world's largest breweries, and it has won world it has won awards worldwide for its efficiency, automation, and cleanliness. So you want a dirty pub, but you want a clean brewery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then in 2014, Guinness opened what is called Brewhouse Four, and it is a state-of-the-art brewery within St. James Gate in Dublin. And this new brew house is one of the most technologically advanced and environmentally sustainable in the world. Um, it also makes Guinness the largest stout brewery in the world. It does not hold the title as the largest brewery in the world, but it is the largest stout brewery in the world. Okay. Um, they consume over 100,000 tons of Irish barley a year. And they continue to be one of the biggest job producers um, and money contributors for the Irish economy. Uh, how many countries? There's 196 countries in the world. How many countries do you think Guinness is sold in worldwide? 190. No, it's a little bit smaller. 180. 150. <laughs> Which is a Which lot. Which is still most of the countries in the world. Yes. 150 countries you can find Guinness Stout in today, and there are over 10 million glasses of Guinness served daily around the world. 10 million. Damn. It's wild. Yeah. Uh, and so even if you don't love beer, and it's just not for you, if you find yourself in Dublin... Mm -hmm. You have to go to St. James Brewery and do the tour. Um, just the fact that you're standing on the ground that Arthur Guinness stood on mm -hmm. over 200 years ago and they've brewed their beer in that same spot and have given so much back to the community. Like that history alone, you should go and see. Yeah. But also, I've been there. I've yeah. done the tour twice. And... It is, it's like a whole experience. Uh -huh. Like, first off, this brew house that they built in 2014 
The building is shaped like a Guinness pint glass. Oh my gosh. And I want to say it's four or five floors. Mm -hmm. And like the top floor is a bar. Yeah. With really like a 360 degree view of Dublin. Uh-huh. And then like... There are layers where you get to, like, learn the history of Guinness. Uh -huh. Then there is, um, there's, like, an aroma layer where you go through these rooms and they, like, spray the air with the different parts that go into their beer. Uh -huh. And then there's a layer where you go into, like, a mock bar and they teach you the proper pouring technique, like, with a full draft system of how to pour a proper Guinness. Uh -huh. And you get like a certificate that you walk out of. Uh -huh. And then of course there's, you know, a gift shop with yeah. everything. And then like you get a drink at the top. Uh-huh. And you can then stay and drink more if you want. Right. But like it is just a fantastic museum experience to learn like the history and to enjoy. Yeah. So highly recommend visiting St. James Brewery if you find yourself in Dublin. Um, and as the Irish say, cause they don't say cheers, you should raise a glass to Arthur and yell slancha. Nice. We have a story about cheers in different languages too early on. I was just saying, it's like episode two. Yeah. Um, and so I did have some sources. My biggest source in all honesty is St. James Gate Brewery. They have mm -hmm. a very long history uh -huh. um, on their website, so you can check that out, but also see it in person. From Grand European Travel, it's the history of Guinness Stout, Ireland's famous beer. So I got some facts from them. And then I also, on hopculture.com, read The Cult of Guinness, the crazy history of one of the world's most iconic breweries. Nice. So, those... so you could you could go toward the brew house, right? Then you could go to Kavanaugh's yeah. and you could have a Guinness with the man in tweed because that's his drink. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't go to Ireland and not have a Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> so 